And as I said, this Parsha is called Miketz. When Yosef went, was sold by his brothers, Yaakov grieved greatly for his loss. And of course, Yosef was his, he was the child of his old age. He was the child of his most beloved wife. And we know all of that. But there was more to that. Another reason our sages tell us that Yaakov grieved for Yosef is because it was, he knew that Yosef was the flame that would destroy Esav. Esav was a danger not just to Yaakov, not just personally, not just to his family, but Esav was a danger into the world. There were two very strong forces that were born into the world, and they're represented by Yaakov and Esav. And Yaakov represents Alam Haba in the world to come, spirituality, and Esav represents this world. Well, Yaakov had to prove that he could also be effective in this world. And so he spent that time, 14 years at Levan's house. He spent the time in Shechem after he wrestled with Esav's angel, um, purchasing land and setting up a money market. He did his, he diligently strove to make his place in this world. And and, um, Yosef was going to be an extension of that. That's what it means when it says in, uh, in, um, let's see, what is that passage? Ovadia. That it says that Yaakov is the fire and Yosef is is the flame. And Esav is the straw. That it was going to be Yosef who would extend that flame of the fire of Yaakov to burn up Esav. And it was not just Esav. It's not just a struggle between two brothers. It's a struggle between two ideologies. It's a struggle between the, the fight of having just this world or Alam Haba, this world and the world to come. And when we look at that struggle between Yaakov and Esau's angel, one thing we have to realize, how important that was and how strong that was, that the angel of Esau is the angel that we call Sam. Now, Yaakov, Israel, is represented by not an angel, but by God himself. And on the other end, you have this mirror image of an opposite it looks a lot alike, but there's an opposite. It's opposite. And this is the accuser, the adversary, the angel that we call Sam. Now, that's only a short part of his name. This is the angel that is also called by people, the Satan, the serpent, the devil. But don't get the idea that it's this ugly thing red with horns and a pitchfork and a tail and all that. That's fairy tale stuff. That is not reality. The angel of Asav is an angel that stands in the court of heaven, that participates in the court of heaven. He's the angel that was the accuser of Job. When Job was 
a righteous man before God and and the accuser said oh well if you were to be a little bit harder on him maybe he would not be so righteous this is the angel of Asaph and so it's this struggle between these two powers and so when Yaakov saw that or thought that Yosef was gone you notice that Yaakov did not decide to come back into Eretz Canaan until after Yosef's birth because then he was ready to face Esau but when he thought that Yosef was gone that he was dead he was mortified because he did he felt like there was no hope there was no hope for the future that this person Yosef had such a such an important um, purpose for his life for his soul in the world that if he was no more that he did not see the hope to overcome this adversary to overcome evil that it's a struggle for power that when one is up the other is down and the only hope for this was going to be Yosef now it's very very interesting I've been reading a book about Shabbatai Svi who said he was Mashiach bin Yosef and one of the things that it says about Mashiach bin Yosef is that he is going to defeat a dome he is going to defeat Rome which is our last exile here and to make this prophecy come true for himself he was a false messiah but he sent his prophet Natan of Gaza to Rome and it's not really clear it hasn't really been written what exactly Natan did but then of course they published a paper saying that the Gentiles were defeated and the kingdom of God was at hand well that was 400 years ago so the kingdom of God was not at hand obviously but this is something that is very well known among the Jewish people that this is a function of Mashiach bin Yosef it is a function that comes under the name Yosef so when Yosef was gone Yaakov became distraught he became very very um, grief stricken and could not be consoled so Yosef went down into Mitzrayim he went through slavery he went to prison for something he was totally innocent of and he spent years in prison and he showed himself there as somebody who was very very talented in interpreting dreams with God's help that he had this spirit this gift of interpretation and as Paro himself said when he he met he was introduced to him that he saw the spirit of God was on Yosef so now let's look at the passage and it starts in 41 chapter 41 it came to pass at the end of two full years now this is after the butler has been released from prison two full years that Paro had a dream and lo he stood by the river deep in thought 
And lo, out of the river there came seven cows, beautiful to look upon and healthy of flesh, and they went to graze in the meadow. And lo, seven other cows came up after, out of the river after them, bad to look upon, thin of flesh, and they stood next to the cows at the river bank. And the cows that were bad to look upon and thin of flesh ate up the seven cows that were beautiful to look upon and healthy of flesh. And Paro awakened. But he fell asleep again and had a second dream. Lo, seven ears of corn grew upon one stalk, healthy and good. And lo, seven ears, thin and blasted by the east wind, grew up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven healthy, full ears. Paro awoke, and lo, it was a dream. It came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. He therefore sent and called for the hieroglyphics in Mitzrayim and all the wise men there. Paro told them his dream, but none interpreted them for Paro. Now these hieroglyphics were um, the people who did engraving, who were the engravers on the the uh, steles and in the in the tombs and so on. They were people who were constantly engaged in interpretation of symbols. So Paro naturally assumed that if anybody would be able to interpret the symbols of his dream, surely it would be these men. But they were not able to interpret the dream. Now we notice there a, a similarity between the story of Yosef and Paro and the story of um, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar how Daniel was this Hebrew slave who had been captured this Jewish slave who had been captured from Jerusalem from the fall of Judah and taken to Babylon and he interpreted the dreams of the king and thereby won the favor of the king and we see a similar story here with Yosef and the chief of butlers spoke to Paro as follows. Now suddenly, after two years, the chief of butlers does remember. I called to mind my faults today. Paro was angry with his servants and placed me into the custody of the house of the chief of cooks, me and the chief of bakers. And we had a dream one night. I and he, each of us dreamed as if it were an interpretation of his dream. There was with us a Hebrew youth, a slave of the chief of cooks. We told them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for each one of us. He interpreted according to his dreams. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He, he had me restored to my office and had him, the baker, hanged. And Paro sent and had Yosef called. They ordered him to hurry out of the prison, but first he shaved, changed all his clothing, and thus came to Paro. Now it wasn't only that, according to Midrash, before he was able to go to Paro, he w- it was known in the heavens that he was going to be tested by Paro. It was known in the heavens what was going to happen. And so an angel came to Yosef at the very 
the night before he was called and he taught Yosef all the languages of the world all the 70 languages of the world and this is a very important point now Paro said to Yosef I had a dream and no one interprets it but I have heard it said of you that you hear a dream in order to interpret it and remember the last time we talked about dreams we talked about interpretation so everything depends on the proper listening to the dream he said that if you hear a dream you hear a dream in order to interpret it so everything depends on how the listener the interpreter hears the dream and then he's able to interpret it and each person could hear a dream and get a different interpretation so there could be several interpretations of the dream Yosef replied to Paro it is not with me may God provide an answer that will mean peace of Paro and Paro said to Yosef in my dream lo I am standing there at the river at the river bank and lo out of the river there came seven cows healthy of flesh and there came and beautiful to look upon and they went to graze in the meadow and lo seven other cows came out after them poor and very bad to look upon and meager of flesh such as I never saw in all the land of Mitzrayim for ugliness and the thin bad cows ate up the seven first healthy cows they came inside them but it could not be known that they had come inside them their appearance was as bad as before then I awoke and I saw in my dream and lo seven ears grew, grow upon one stalk full and good and lo seven ears withered thin blasted by the east wind grow after them and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears I have told it to the hieroglyphics but none of them knows to tell it to me and Yosef said to Paro Paro's dream is only one dream what God is about to do he has announced to Paro now before he interpreted the dream he went up there were 70 steps up to Paro and this comes in very um, this comes as very important later that on each of these steps Paro addressed Yosef and he answered him in, the, in a certain language and he came all the way up those steps that the angel taught him the 70 languages of the world that Yosef was versed so that he was a man of all of the world true Ben Noah as well as being a Hebrew and later this comes in very handy for Yosef because when he got to the very top by Paro himself he said something to him in Hebrew and Paro could not understand him and so then later on when um, Yosef wants to go and bury his father Paro has said to him not to tell anybody that he can't understand Hebrew that there was a language of the world that Paro could not understand and he promised but when he went to Paro to ask him to give him permission to bury his father Paro said you know forget your promise 
And Yosef says to him, well, maybe I have to forget my promise to you. So Yosef is given this right here at the very first meeting. He's given that edge by this angel that teaches him all the languages of the world so that he can be a ruler in the world, a true ruler of all of the world, that he knows all the languages. This is the mark of the of, of a wise man in the ancient world. So, Yosef is now interpreting his dream. This was the first thing that is in Midrash before he ever starts to interpret his dream. He's interpreting his dream here. And that also gives us the reason that Paro sees the wisdom of Yosef. That he sees that he's not an ordinary, just an ordinary person that would be in prison. There's something very special about him. So he says to Paro, Paro's dream is only one dream. What God is about to do, he has announced to Paro. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. It's all only one dream. And the seven thin bad cows, which will come after them, are seven years, and likewise the seven empty ears blasted by the east wind, they are seven years of famine. Thus it is, as I have said to Paro, what God is about to do. He has shown to Paro. Behold, there will come seven years of great plenty in the land of Nisraim. After this there will arise seven years of famine, so that all the plenty will be forgotten in all the land of Mitzrayim, and the famine will ruin, ruin the land. The plenty in the land will no longer be known because the famine that will follow it, for it will be terrible. And regarding the fact that the dream was repeated to Paro twice, it is because the thing stands ready from God, and God is hastening to bring it about. So this is an underscoring of an emphasis here that Hashem gave the dream twice to Paro, that this thing is going to come to Mitzrayim, but it's going to affect the whole world. And now let Paro seek out a judicious and wise man and set him over the land of Mitzrayim. And let Paro himself do this, and appoint officials over the land and impose upon the land of Mitzrayim as a tax, one-fifth during the seven years of plenty. Let them hold back the food of these coming years and let them also, under Paro's hand, store up grain for food in the cities and keep it. Thus the food will remain as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine that will come to the land of Mitzrayim, so that the land will not perish entirely from the famine. This is good in the eyes of this was good in the eyes of Paro and in the eyes of all his servants. And Paro said to his servants, Will we be able to find a man such as this one, in whom there is the Spirit of God? So here you have it, that, Hashem, that Paro himself, even though he is um, an idolater himself, he can still recognize in Yosef a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of God. This spirit of being able to discern one thing from another thing. And this is the Elohim that Paro sees. And to Yosef, Paro said, Since God has let you know this, there is no one as judicious and wise as you. You shall be set over my house, and all my people will be organized 
in accordance with your word, only as regards the, the throne will I be greater than you. So he makes Yosef like his alter ego. He makes him his alternate. There is no one who is more powerful than Yosef other than Paro himself. Only Paro himself. So, and in this world, in this ancient world of rulers, the ruler would would demand of the subject that he bow. And so, this is another thing that he's saying to Yosef is that all of the people are going to serve him, they're going to bow to him, because Paro himself orders it. So Yosef essentially is made a king in Egypt by Paro. The people are essentially going to go to Yosef instead of Paro. And we see that in a minute. Paro further said to Yosef, Look, I have set you over all the land of Mitzrayim. Paro took off his ring from his hand and placed it upon Yosef's hand dressed him in garments of byssus, and placed the gold medallion about his neck and had him ride in the chariot intended for the second after him and they called out before him I command that everyone bend the knee and thus he set him over all the land of Mitzrayim see he commanded all the subjects that they had to bend their knees they had to bow down kneel before Yosef Essentially, Yosef was made a king. Then Paro said to Yosef, I am Paro, but without you, no one in the land of Mitzrayim shall lift his hand or his foot. Paro named Yosef Sanefet, no, Safinet, oh, sorry, I always have problems with this name, sorry. Safinet, Panea. And I'm very glad that this is the only time we see this name. Just a moment, please. Sorry about that. So this is the only time that we really see this name. He does not really go by this name, except the Egyptians know him as this name. But the scriptures continue to call him Yosef. And he gave him as wife, Asnat, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On. Thereafter, Yosef went out over the land of Mitzrayim. And this is, Asnat was, who? Does everybody remember what we said um, in a previous Parsha, who she is? She is the daughter of Dina. So it's a very interesting connection there that there's going to be two children who will each have a um, a tribe and they come from Yosef and Dina who are actually born about the same time from their different mothers. Yosef was 30 years old when he stood before Paro, king of Mitzrayim. Now Yosef went out from Paro's presence and traveled through all the land of Mitzrayim. The land produced only handful, handfuls during the seven 
the land produced by the handfuls during the seven years of plenty, but he held back all the food of the seven years that were in the land of Mitzrayim and placed food into the cities. The food of the field round about each city he placed within it. Yosef piled up grain like the sand of the sea in exceeding measure until they ceased to count it, for it was without number. So there was so much grain piled up that it was it was um, an immense amount. During this time of plenty, I mean, we think about it, and we see that he held back a fifth. You know, he didn't hold back half, he held back a fifth, because the time of plenty was exceedingly, exceedingly plentiful. And two sons were born to Yosef before a year of famine came. Before, yeah, whom Asnath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest in On, had borne him. Yosef named his firstborn Manasseh, for God has made all my troubles and all my family's house into creditors for me. And the second son he named Ephraim, for God has caused me to blossom in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty which was in the land of Mitzrayim came to an end, and seven years of famine began to come. Just as Yosef had said, there was a famine in all the lands. There was bread on hand throughout the land of Mitzrayim. So all of the world, all of the known world, was experiencing this famine. So essentially what happened was the Mitzrayim rose to be a world power. Mitzrayim rose to be a world power simply because of the need that they could fill for all of the countries around about. And the one person who was the ruler in Mitzrayim, so we could say essentially that there was one man who ruled the whole world, and that was Yosef, that he was the ruler of all of the world. Because all of the world had to go to Mitzrayim for bread. So when they were hungry, the people of Mitzrayim were starving. They came to Paro for bread, and Paro said to all of them, Go to Yosef. What he says to you, do. The famine was all over the region. And Yosef opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Mitzrites at retail. However, the famine kept increasing in the land of Mitzrayim. And they came from all over Mitzrayim to buy at retail to Yosef, for the famine was severe all over. So Yosef controlled the sale of the grain in such a way that there could not be speculation on the grain. He made sure that each household only got what they needed so that he could avoid the speculation and somebody driving the prices up to where people would, would not be able to afford to eat. <clears throat> that's another thing that he was a, he was a very good manager of the grain in order to make sure that the people of the, all of the world would still have plenty to eat Yaakov saw that there was a retail sale of grain in Mitzrayim and Yaakov said to his son why are you looking at each other now notice that the word retail is used several times here that it was sold at a profit 
Mitzrayim is going to become very, very wealthy over the sale of grain. So Yaakov says to his sons, Why are you looking at each other? For he said, Behold, I have heard there is a retail sale of grain in Mitzrayim. Go down there and buy at retail for us from there so that we may survive and not die. So Yosef's ten brothers went down to buy grain at retail from Mitzrayim. But Yaakov did not send Yosef's brother Benjamin with the brothers, for he said an accident might befall him. So he was very concerned all this time, all the time about Benjamin, because he had had Yosef um, disappear, and he was. It made him even more concerned about Benjamin's welfare. So the sons of Israel came to buy retail among those who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now notice that at the very beginning of this chapter he is called Yaakov. And Yaakov when we read this and it goes back and forth between Yaakov and Israel you see these names back and forth. You see Yaakov used in such a way here like he's he's kind of um, in a quandary doesn't quite know what to do and then when he makes up his mind and he makes a decision and he says go then suddenly it says so the sons of Israel he's made a decision he's, he stood up they went to buy retail among those who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan and Yosef was the governor over the land and at the same time, he was the one who sold at retail to all the population of the land. Yosef's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. And Midrash says that when they went into the land, Yaakov told them, don't go all of you in the same gate. Because he was also concerned about their welfare. Go into different gates they won't see you all coming in together and they also had another purpose because they thought well maybe if Yosef ended up in Mitzrayim maybe we could find him they thought maybe he did end up in Mitzrayim and so they were going and they were looking in um, because they had a low opinion of Yosef they were looking in um kind of the bad parts of town looking around to see if they could find him see if they could find him as a slave if they could find him in a brothel because they had this low opinion of him they went into the different gates though when Yosef saw his brothers he recognized them but he made himself stranger to them and spoke roughly to them and said to them where do you come from and they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food at retail. Now notice this very important phrase. It says, Yosef saw his brothers and he recognized them. But they did not recognize him. Now this is a very important phrase. Because like always, like from the very beginning, they really didn't recognize Yosef. They did not recognize 
what was in him, what was his purpose, what was his potential. They did not recognize that. They saw the negative side. They saw the negative possibilities, but they never saw the positive. They never saw the potential for greatness. And when he had his dreams, all he could see was, this is a spoiled brat. He just thinks he's going to be better than we are. He's going to put himself um, above us and try to usurp us and make us nothing. That's all they could think of. They could not give him, they could not see the positive. So here again, and it's being played out in a very literal way, they see this man who looks like an Egyptian. He's dressed like an Egyptian. He speaks the language of Egypt. And he speaks to them through an interpreter, in fact. And for all intents and purposes, they think this is an Egyptian. It never crosses their mind that this could be their own brother. So this is a very important point that we need to make. We need to remember that they don't recognize him. But he does recognize them. So Yosef plays the stranger. He plays that up because he knows they don't recognize him. And on the one hand, we would say, well, why wouldn't he just have said, I'm your brother, I'm Yosef, and just come out with it, just be clear. And the reason is because if he did that, there would always be this question in his mind about whether they had truly changed whether they had truly done repentance or they had done shuva. So he needs to find out, not only for his own peace of mind, which is important, but also for theirs, for, for them. He needs to find out, he's going to push them so that they can step into their place. So this is the whole reason that he goes through all of this. We have to bear that in mind. That it was quite premeditated. It was for a a good purpose. He wasn't being vindictive here. He was wanting to find out. He needed to find out. So he presents himself as a stranger and he speaks to them harshly. Yosef recognized his brothers but he did not recognize them. They did not recognize him. Sorry. And Yosef remembered the dreams which he had dreamed of them. And he said, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, they have been behaving like spies because they've gone in these separate gates and it looks like they were spying out the land. In a way, they were. They said to him, No, my lord, my, your servants have come to buy food at retail, and we are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants were never spies. But he said to them, No, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they replied, We are twelve, your servants, brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is still with our father today, and the other is gone. But Yosef said to them, 
This is just what I have said to you. You are spies. Therefore you shall be tested by the life of Pyro. You shall not go away from here unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you and let him fetch your brother so that that you remain here under arrest so your words may be tested whether there is truth with you or else by the life of Pyro you are spies. Now notice this. Yosef is making playing a ruse here. He is pretending. He is speaking actually untruth. He knows it. And so he doesn't say swearing in the name of Hashem. Notice he says by the life of Paro. Notice the words he uses. Very carefully he picks them out. He's very careful what he says. And it's not only because he's wanting them to think he is this Egyptian that thinks Paro is a god, which that's probably what they thought. But he's very careful that he does not say the wrong thing because he knows he's speaking something that isn't really quite the truth. So, he can safely say, by the life of Paro. He took them into custody for three days. On the third day, Yosef said to them, Do this and remain alive. I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain under arrest in the house where you are in custody. But you go and bring home the purchase for the famine to your household. And bring your younger brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, So we are guilty after all with regard to our brother that we witnessed the distress of his soul when when he entreated us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now notice what they say here. The thing they're guilty of is not that they saw danger in Yosef. Not that they misjudged him. They don't feel guilty for that because they really believe they're right. They believe they were right. But that they had turned a hard heart toward the cries of their brother. When he was in the pit, they say, we're guilty. And they know this is true, that they were they turned away from his cries for help. <clears throat> and they let him be in the pit where he was afraid. Ruvain answered them, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the child? But you would not listen. Behold, his blood is therefore now avenged. They did not know that Yosef understood them, for the interpreter was between them. So Yosef is listening to the conversation to see what their reaction is going to be after they've been in prison for three days, and then they're discussing this in front of him. And they don't know he can understand. He turned away from them and wept. Then he returned to them and spoke with them and took Shimon from them and had him bound before their eyes. And notice which one he chooses. Shimon. He separates Levi and Shimon, just like his father says later. But it's Shimon who is the one who is really quick to act and murderous. And so he separates Shimon, the one with a real hair trigger um, anger. 
The other saints gave orders, and they filled their vessels with rings. But he gave orders also to put back every man's money into his own sack, and also to give them provision for the journey. And thus it was done for them. They loaded their purchase upon their donkeys, and departed from there. And one of them opened his sack to give fodder to his donkey at the lodging place. And he saw the money, and lo, it was at the top of his pack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been returned. In fact, it is in my pack. And their hearts went out from them. And they said, frightened to one another, What is this that God has done to us? So each time along the way, they're not blaming someone else. They're blaming themselves. They see their own guilt. This shows they're very God-fearing people. This shows that their hearts, their souls, they're very aware. And they see it as being their own guilt that's coming back on them. That they're being punished for what they have done. And they came to their father Yaakov to the land of Canaan and told him all that had befallen them as follows. The man, the master of the land, spoke roughly to us and made us out as if we were spying out the land. We said to him, We are honest men. We are never spies. We are twelve brothers, the sons of our father. One of us is gone and the youngest is still with our father today in the land of Canaan. Thereupon, the man, the master of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take that for which your households hunger and go away and bring your younger brother to me then I will know you are not spies and that you are honest men I will give your younger brother to you I will give your brother to you and you may do business in the land and it came to pass when they emptied their sacks and lo each one had his own bundle of money in his sack they and their father saw the bundles of money and were frightened but their father, Yaakov, said to them, You have made me childless. Yosef is gone. Shimon is gone. And now you want to take Binyamin away. Upon me have all these things come. And Reuben said to his father, You can kill my two sons if I do not bring him home to you. Put him into my hands and I will bring him back. Now notice Reuben. Reuben always seems to say the wrong thing seems to do the wrong thing he shows over and over that he is not the one who is capable of carrying forward the Bahar, the blessing of the, of the firstborn and in fact even suggesting such a thing to his father that he could kill his own grandson I mean it's just like unthinkable and how could Ruvain know his father so little to think that his father would think would not love his grandsons, that he could even do such a thing. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, because his brother is dead and he is left alone is left. If an accident were to befall him on the way on which you go, you would bring down my grey head in sorrow to the grave. So here you don't see Yaakov make an answer to what Ruvain has suggested. What Ruvain has suggested is really unthinkable. Totally unthinkable. And so in the written text, you don't see Yaakov even making an answer to this. How could you even consider such a thing? 
how could you even consider that? I would say, okay, because I lose one son, then I'm going to lose two grandsons too. I mean, it's ridiculous. But this is, it's indicative of how little Ruvang really could connect with what was going on with Yaakov. But the famine was severe in the land. When they had used up the purchase, which they brought from its rhyme, their father said to them, Please go back there. Buy us a little food. However, I notice it's not Ruvain who talks now. Yehuda answered him, The man has warned us repeatedly. You will not see my face again if your brother is not with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will gladly go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him with us, we cannot go down because the man has said to us, You will not see my face again if your brother is not with you. And Israel said, Why have you done this terrible thing to me to tell the man that you have another brother? They replied, The man repeatedly asked us about our origin. Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And we reported to him according to these questions. How were we to know that he would say, Bring down your brother? And Yehuda said to his father, to Israel, his father. Now notice it starts with Yaakov and then it goes to Israel here. And notice the different answer that Yehuda gives to their father, how different it is from Reuben. Just send the lad with me and we will gladly arise and go so that we may remain alive and not die, both we and also you and our children. I will be a surety from him, for him. From my hand you shall demand him. If I do not bring him home to you and set him before you, I will have sinned against you forever. For if only we had not lingered, we could have been back a second time by now. So Yehuda is reasoning with his father. And he's not saying, you can kill my son. He's not saying something so outrageous. He's saying the sin will be on me. I will be a surety for him. I will take care of him, I promise you. And this is something that Yaakov can accept. Because Reuven never said that. Reuven never promised to take care of Binyamin. He only said, you can kill my son. You see the total difference. In, the, in these two answers. And Israel, their father, said to them, If that is so, what else is there to do? Do this. Now he's Israel. Now he's decisive. Now he can think. Because Yehuda's answer has put his mind to some ease. He's put him a little bit, a little bit more to ease, to rest than he was before. So Israel, their father, said to them, If that is so, what else is there to do? Do this. Take into your vessels from that which the land boasts, and bring a gift to the man, a little balsam, a little honey, spices, and laudanum, pistachio nuts, and almonds. And take double the money in your hand, and the money that was put back in the top of your sack, 
return it to your return it with your hands. Perhaps it was an oversight. And take your brother. Arise and go back to the man, and may God, the all sufficing, grant you compassion before the man, so that he will let your other brother and Binyamin go. And as for me, if I must be bereft of my children, then I will be bereft. The man took this gift. They also took double the, the men took this gift and also double the money with them and Binyamin. They rose and went down to Mitzrayim and stood before Yosef. So ya- Yaakov comes to terms with this, that this has to be because he's convinced of it by Yehuda. Yosef saw Binyamin with them and said to the overseer of his house, Bring these men into the house. Slaughter animals and prepare the meat, for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Yosef said, and the man brought the men into Yosef's house. And the men were frightened because they were brought into Yosef's house because of the money and they said because the money of of the money which was put back into our packs we are now being brought there that he may turn upon us and fall upon us and take us as slaves and our beasts of burden and they stepped up to the overseer of Yosef's house and talked with him at the entrance of the house and they said oh my lord we have already come down here once before to buy food and it came to pass when we came when we had come to the lodging place that we opened our packs and lo the money of each one lay at the top of his pack it was our own money in its weight we have brought it back with us and we have brought down our money with us to buy food we do not know who put the money into our packs he replied peace be with you do not be afraid your God and the God of your fathers has placed a hidden treasure into your packs. Your money has come to me. So he's saying, we already received the money. We've been paid for that. Don't worry about it. And this is like an Egyptian would think. Hidden treasure. He also led Shimon out to them. Thereupon the the man brought the men into Yosef's house, had water given to them, They washed their feet and also had fodder given to their donkeys. They prepared the gift for Yosef's coming home at noon, for they heard they were to dine there. When Yosef came home, they brought him the gift which they had brought with them into the house and bowed down to him to the ground. He inquired after their welfare and said, Is your old father of whom you have spoken well, is he alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and cast themselves down. He lifted up his eyes and saw Binyamin, his brother, the son of his mother, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you have told me? He said, May God be gracious to you, my son. And Yosef hastened for his feelings toward his brother had been stirred up and he wanted to weep. And he went into the room and wept there. So again he had to turn away because he was crying. He washed his face and came out again, restrained himself and said, Serve the food. They set for, 
they set for him by himself and them by themselves and also for the Mitzrites who dined with them by themselves because the Mitzrites could not dine with the Hebrews for it was an abomination to the Mitzrites and he sat before him they sat before him the eldest according to his age and the younger according to his youth and the men looked at each other in astonishment so he had like he set them placed them in the order of their age and they had no idea how in the world he could have known this he had portions brought to them before him and Binyamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs they ate and drink, drank and became intoxicated at his home so this was the banquet that he had prepared for them and one of the things that the Midrash tells us that when he had the animals prepared that he removed the sciatic nerve from the animals so that they would be able to eat it and they were astonished to see this as well because they knew to do this this was a tradition of their family of, of the family of Yaakov that they would not eat that sciatic, the hindquarter that had the sciatic nerve in it and that he was able to remove that and then also that he placed them in uh, order of their ages from the oldest down to the youngest and then he gave special gifts to Binyamin and not only that <coughs> um, well anyway he placed them in the order of their ages and he gave special gifts to Binyamin because he was he was his brother and he hadn't seen him since he was a little bitty boy afterwards he commanded the overseer of the house fill the packs of the men with food as much as they can carry and place the money of each person at the top of his sack but put my goblet the silver goblet at the top of the sack of the youngest and also his purchase money he did according to the command of Yosef which the latter had uttered the morning was light and the men they and their donkeys had already been sent on their way they had just gone out of the city not yet far off but Yosef had already said to the overseer of the house up pursue those men and when you overtake them say to them why have you repaid good with evil this is the one from whom uh, from which my master drinks and he has a presentment about it and you have done evil in what you have done now what he's saying to him is this is the cup with which my master does divination and this was a common thing among the rulers of the nations that they believed in this sort of thing sometimes people will look at this passage about Yosef and they take it as an excuse that they can do divination that this is um, that it excuses it that's absolutely not true at all it is not an excuse for that and Yosef was not really doing divination he was pretending with this cup that that's what he was doing so that it was it was a whole act but the brothers don't know that so this is another part of the act of being this Egyptian king 
So the overseer overtook them and said these words to them. Well, they replied, Why does my Lord say such words? It would be profanation for your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found at the top of our packs we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then should we steal silver or gold from your master's house? With whomever your servants will find it, he shall die. And we too, we will remain as slaves to my Lord. So remember the last time when something like this happened. When Levon followed Yaakov and he um, said, You've stolen from my house. And Yaakov said the very same thing. Whoever you find it with will die. And who was it? It was Rachel. And here it is, Rachel's son that has the cup. Of course, he did not take it. He was innocent of that. But the overseer replied, Now, too, it is still as you say. The one with whom it will be found will remain as my slave, but you will remain free. Each man quickly lowered his pack to the ground, and each man opened his pack. He searched. He began with the eldest and finished with the youngest. The goblet was found in Benjamin's pack. They rent their garments. Each man loaded his donkey again, and they returned to the city. Yehuda and his brothers came to Yosef's house. He was still there, and they cast themselves upon the ground before him. And Yosef said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that a man such as I believes in presentiments or divinations? Yehuda replied, What shall we say to my Lord? How can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the sin of your servants. Here we are as slaves to my Lord, we and also the one in whose hand the goblet was found. But he said, It would be profanation for me to do that. The man in whose hand the goblet was found shall remain my slave, but you shall go in peace to your father. Now as soon as they found this goblet in the sack of Benyamin, the brothers are also remembering what happened with Levon. And so they say to Yosef, so they say to Benjamin, Look at this, just like your mother, you're always touching things. They bring this up to him. But he is innocent. And they don't even stop to think. They jump to this conclusion. Even though they know that the money inside their own sacks was there and they did not take it. Notice this that they do jump to this conclusion. But even though they have misjudged Benjamin, like they misjudged Yosef, unlike that time, now the brothers are willing to come back, all of them, and stand for Benjamin and defend him. And in fact, we're going to see this next week in uh, the next Parsha, Vyagash, is where we see Yagash is meeting. This is um, where there's the meeting between Yosef and Yehuda. And what are they clashing over? They're clashing over the fate of Benjamin because Yehuda has made a vow to his father that he will protect his Benjamin. And he stands for Benjamin. And this is something that we're going to see very, very important in the future of the nation of Israel that 
Binyamin and Yehuda are, na- are tribes together. The southern kingdom of Yehuda is actually Yehuda and Binyamin. But those those two tribes stay together. Binyamin stays with Yehuda because Yehuda stood for him. So he does not, and it's interesting to, to note this, that the ten tribes of the north do not include Binyamin. That Binyamin clings to Yehuda. Yehuda is the one who stood for him and defended him. And so he clings to, to Yehuda, and there's a loyalty there that, whose bond begins right here. Right here as he stands before Yosef and defends him. And Binyamin, of course, has a love and a, and a connection to his brother Yosef. But this bond with Yehuda is cemented right here at this time. Does anybody have any questions about the Parsha? Kind of went through it fast. What about the previous Parsha Oat? But all the groundwork of the nations and of the tribes are being is being set right here in these stories of how they are um, formulated, how their relationships. And we're really going to get into that more next week. Oh, good. I'm glad that it's easy to follow. So, as I said in the beginning, I apologize for being off today and um, totally forgetting about the class. But um, I'm glad that I came in. It's a very important Parsha that I didn't want us to miss. Um, how the About the dreams, the paro, how the famine came to the land, and how Yosef becomes this world leader, this king, this emperor of the entire world and then the brothers coming out and I want us to realize something too when we look at this story that we see something about repentance and forgiveness it's very important because Yosef had it in his power to not forgive them he had it in his power to really wreak vengeance upon him he was definitely in a position to do that but he decided not to do that. He gave them a test. Yes, he had to do that in order to see if they had changed. So he was right in doing that. But if he had decided to wreak vengeance on them, he could have destroyed the tribes of Israel. It would have made all the difference in the history of the nation of Israel. Or it was in his power to forgive and to allow their repentance to come to fruition so that the tribes of Israel could come into the world so that the brothers could become the nation and the tribes of the nation of Israel so he had a lot of power in his hand there and this is what we we refer to as the 
he is the personification of the sphere in the array of the sphere of Yesod. And this is the sphere, the attribute of Hashem, where all of the energy from above comes down and it's a receptacle for it. It's a receptacle there. And he holds it. And below that is Malchut, which is Yehuda. So, Yosef holds this power. He holds all of this energy. And it's up to him whether he releases it and he empowers the Malchut, the kingship of Yehuda, or if he holds it back. Yehuda, in order to become the king, and all of the brothers, in order to become the tribes, dependent upon Yosef releasing that energy that comes down to him from above, comes down to him, and he's a receptacle holding it, is dependent upon him releasing it to them. And so, Yosef, being responsible for that energy and for that blessing, makes sure, first, that they're worthy of it. And so he empowers them. He ultimately does release it to them, and he empowers them. And so it's through his forgiveness, and through his seeing their repentance, and allowing that energy to go into their repentance so that they can come into their place in the world. Essentially, this is what it's all about. That he had the power to either block them or to empower them to come into their potential, into their place that they were destined to come to, to fulfill their destiny in the world with all in his hands. And how many times do we find ourselves in a position like that? Well, we will we will be in a position where we can see something happening. Something has happened to a person. And that person's future can be in our hands. If we can say we forgive that person and we allow that person to go on and build that person up, or we withhold that and we say, no, I'm not going to forgive them. The relationship is over. I mean, it's going to make all the difference. We are going to empower their tshuva and allow them this it to happen. Or we can actually inhibit a person's being able to do tshuva and go on in their destined place in the world. It's a really a lot to think about how much power we can have like that and responsibility that Hashem gives to us and this is one lesson of this story of the meeting of the brothers with Yosef that that is very very strong I mean it's one time like last year I guess it was um, it really hit me it hit me full force how much power that is to build up a person, to allow that person, and to encourage that person in their tshuva so that they can make things right for themselves, or to say, nope, I'm not going to do it, forget it, I'm never forgiving you. It, it makes all the difference in the world. So, of course, we have to understand, have an understanding of when the right time is there are times where where we can't 
you know, where things have gone too far and we can't. And then there are other times where it might look like we can't, but we have to give it a chance. So we have to really have an understanding of exactly what we're looking at. And this was what Yosef was trying to get. By doing this test for his brothers, he was trying to get an understanding. He did not just jump right out there and say, I'm your brother Yosef. All is forgiven. Because he would have always wondered if their tshuva was real. So he didn't do that right away. Notice that. He didn't do that right away. But then in the end, he realized, yes, I have to release this power to them. I have to release this energy to them so that they can become the tribe. So, thank you for joining me tonight. If nobody has any more questions, anything that you would like to say, comments, I'm glad that you joined me and hope that you will join us next week. I won't forget next week. <laughs> and um, tomorrow, next week is going to be the continuation of the uh, story about the actual meeting, the actual showdown, as it were, between Yosef and Yehuda. Via gosh. <laughs>